0: Snuff Production. Jeanette Francis, better known as Jan Fran, is, well, she's a host on The Briefing Podcast, everyone. Recently returned to our show after having her beautiful baby boy, Jan is a Lebanese-Australian journalist and presenter. Jan is ridiculously accomplished. She's won a Walkley Award. She's worked as a foreign correspondent and she's well known as a TV presenter and as a content creator online. But she's also got a talent for simplicity and curiosity. She can explain the most complex of concepts and ideas to an audience. Today, she and I got stuck into those complex ideas, touching on everything from motherhood to multiculturalism. My name is Jamila Risby, and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here's my conversation with Jan Fran. Jan Fran, welcome
1: to The Weekend Briefing. Thanks, Jan. I can't believe you've been doing this for so long and only
0: now have we gotten together to chat. Well, your people have gotten in the way, you know, <laughs> putting in the repair <laughs> But it's hard to get close to you when it's (laughs) that long.
1: I am constantly surrounded by people. I have a moat of people, correct. And I apologize for them.
0: We finally got there. I feel like it's totally reasonable when you are one of the world's busiest human beings. (laughs) Tell me about how life has changed for you in the last 12 months.
1: Oh. Just the minor difference of having a child. Uh, seven and a half months ago that uh, that was not there 12 months ago and now is is very much there uh and there all the time as it turns out when when you have a kid you wake up and you're like oh there's a there's a baby here and then and then it like dawns on you time and time again it's like that's my baby. okay, I guess I'm responsible for another human being. So that's been the biggest difference in my life from 12 months ago to now, and, you know, just kind of navigating that and navigating getting back into work, which I did pretty quickly after I had the baby, and navigating chores. This is what people don't tell you about parenthood, man. It's 95% chores. Baby
0: cleaning, baby chores are never-ending.
1: It's like, it's incredible. And, you know, the one thing I keep telling people has prepared me the most for motherhood, honestly. It is being a TV producer.
0: Okay, you're going to have to explain that. (laughs) I know that that makes no sense, but
1: it's like the skills that I have developed working as a TV producer, particularly in daily news, you develop the ability very quickly to let things go because you don't really have time. You develop the ability to uh, speak to deadlines, which when you have a baby, you kind of have to know when you've got to get the food ready, when they need to change, when you need to call it, when you need to go home. You're constantly thinking about the weather, what's the sun doing. Every, every time I went on a shoot, you'd have this very detailed sort of map of where you're supposed to be, what the weather is like that day, where the sun is going to be at, whatever time of the day it is that you're shooting. If the sun moves, you need to have a contingency. It's the same. It's exactly the same. I walk out of the house and I'm like, okay, do I have a winter blanket? Yes. Do I have a summer blanket? Yes. Do I have a mild spring blanket? Yes. Do I have a summer hat? Yes. Do I have a winter hat? Yeah. Do, you know, and it's just, you know, you're, you're dealing with horrible talent of the horrible, time. Horrible. Unpracticed. <laughs> unpracticed talent. They don't want to cooperate. Doesn't know its angles. Cannot find its light. You know, um, there's been there's been so many moments like that where I've thought, oh wow, I've really honed this skill working in television uh, more than anywhere else. And somehow it seems applicable to a baby. What surprised you most? Uh what surprised me most, and probably very pleasantly surprised me, was um how intuitive I was. M- more so than what I thought I would be, put it put it that way. Because I Yeah, I was always sort of, um, sort of on the fence about having kids. I guess I was—I was never really like, I definitely want to have kids, or I definitely don't want to have kids. And so part of me thought when I got pregnant, had this feeling of, oh, what if I just don't know what to do, or what if I, you know, get really kind of confused, and what if it's really hard, and what if? And I've been very pleasantly surprised by how intuitive I am. Around him. Like, I think he needs this. I think he needs that. I've got a feeling it's probably this. Give it a go. I'm like, you know what? Vikings had babies. In yeah, they did. The the dead of winter. They took them to war. Sure. That's just my history. (laughs) (laughs) I watch Netflix. Um, But, you know, we've been having babies for since forever. And um, the fact that, you know, babies have been born into horrendous circumstances at times and been eventually fine. I think that gave me a lot of solace to sort of be chill and be able to really like tap into the intuitiveness of it a little bit. Yeah. So that was a a very good surprise.
0: I feel like for a lot of us when you become a parent, you start thinking about the kind of parent you want to be and your first port of call is your own parents because they're the only ones you've sort of seen do it really like properly up close and personal. When you think about your own childhood, what are the bits that you look at and think, yeah, that, I want to recreate that? Um, I know
1: that uh, there's a couple of things. Um, One is how safe we were made to feel, um, which is something that I definitely want to recreate with my kid. And the idea of safety, your home is safe. Your parents are always there to keep you safe. Um, if they're calling you in, it's because they want you to be safe. They're going to pick you up from school so you can be safe. There was a real sort of element of safety um, around family and around the home that I really want to replicate. But two, more importantly, is actually my not either of my parents' relationship with me, but my parents' relationship with each other. I've never heard them ever raise their voices at each other, ever. I think I think it happened once. And that was because the cat got ran over, and my mum wanted to tell us, and my dad didn't, and my dad yelled loudly.
0: What? Sorry,
1: sorry, So I know this (laughs) dad wanted to tell you happened. Well, I think he just wanted to, you know, not tell us in that moment. Okay, okay. And emotions were running high, but but see, to have that memory, the reason that it's in my memory is because it just stands out as this moment where it's like, whoa, dad just yelled at mum that never happens. And it has never happened since. So that was a really kind of important foundational relationship, just seeing the sort of mutual love and admiration and respect between the two of them. Every day when uh, my dad would come home from work, he would come in, suitcase down and kiss my mum. Every day. Hello. Every single time. You know, sometimes i I'd, I'd we when we were younger would be like oh shut up dad and mum would be like you never tell your dad to shut up your dad is the best man in the world he, you know and it was yeah but it was this really like um she would jump to his defense and he would jump to her defense and they were they were a really solid unit and they still are knock on wood knock on a thousand pieces of wood that's i think the one thing that i would really love to to replicate in um, you know my own relationship and with my own kid. That's why I've said to my husband, I was like, yeah, no, we can't get divorced. If we ever have a moment where we think that's it, we don't like each other, we're just going to pretend. That's what we're going to do. Possibly for we're a gonna- long time. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> the kid must never know. And that is uh, that is, I don't know if that's a foolproof method, but that's the method I'm employing.
0: Well, it's working for you so far. So congratulations. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about you growing up because you were born in Lebanon and then you moved to Australia when you were really quite young, so you mostly grew up in Bankstown in Sydney. Mm. When I imagine being Lebanese in Bankstown in the 90s, I imagine a pretty tough primary school period. Is that fair? Uh, How do you imagine it being tough? Because I feel like we were in the 90s and into the early 2000s, we had a real othering kind of us and them mentality in Australia around Lebanese migrants.
1: Yeah, um, that that bit's true. It's funny, like the, the difficulty actually wasn't in primary school or high school. It was at Sydney University in my first year there in 2002. Oh. Yeah, um, because Bankstown is probably, if not the most, it's certainly top five in Australia, but it's one of the most multicultural mm. um, council areas in the most multicultural state in possibly the most multicultural country in the world, right? So we grew up and everyone was from everywhere. So it's very normal to be of a heritage that wasn't um, Anglo-Saxon. Having said that, there were still sort of tears, I guess, And you did feel like you were on the outer of kind of what was deemed predominantly white Australia. But because everyone was from somewhere, it just all felt like that was what the rest of the country was like. It's like, okay, cool. This is Australia. And then you leave and you go to Sydney Uni and it's this incredibly rude shock. Yeah. Because you suddenly realise that was the first time that I really contended with being a minority like I don't even think it registered in my head all that much no that that's not true it did but when I when I got to Sydney I'm like oh i never felt more of a minority anywhere else than what I had there in in that year in in 2002. What was um, it do you feel like that? Well, one, you feel like you're on the outer. Two, you feel like you don't belong. Three, it's a, a, a race issue as much as it is a class issue mm-hmm. because you're in the, you know, philosophy, 1001, with people who've gone to, you know, swanky private schools and whose dads are swanky people working in swanky places. And I'd never met people like that before. I just really hadn't. It was a, it was a foreign world to me. And it sort of just felt like I was there by mistake, you know. I was at this place with this grand hall in these grand lecture theaters, with all of these people in these expensive clothes, and I just I shouldn't be there. I was also very young at the time, too young, I think, to um, go to uni, which I think played a part in feeling that way. And you know, that time that you were talking about, that late '90s, early 2000s, that was a very stigmatizing time, and it you felt like you would walked around feeling deeply ashamed of where it is that you come from. And when you go to a place like Sydney Uni, Sydney Uni in particular, because I actually um, ended up graduating from UTS, but when you go to a place like Sydney Uni in particular, for some forsaken reason, you're asked where you're from and what school you went to several times a day so several times a day you kind of feel as though you're forced into this position where you have to go oh I'm just from like a shitty school in a shitty suburb and it's almost this kind of this self-deprecating thing that you feel like you can't really be proud of um because you're being asked by someone who is rich and went to a fancy school and and whatnot yeah so that's I think that's that I found that a bit um difficult to contend with yeah yeah and I, I remember like my drama teacher would, would say oh I hope you're going to join um SUDS which is the Sydney Uni- University Drama Society and I remember leaving high school because I was like if you know I only aced one subject at school surprise drama and I just had it in my head that I, oh, I was going to go and do drama at Sydney University and I got there and I was just like holy f- this is the most I found it to be one of the most exclusive spaces I had ever encountered and when you're when you're on the outside of that it's very difficult to, to see your way in anyway I dropped out in second semester so there <laughs> you <laughs> that went really well for me
0: i like F- this noise I'm out of here you yeah. started your career working as a foreign correspondent with SBS you were working on Insight and on Dateline when did you figure out that journalism was for you and what made you go down the foreign correspondent path? What was it that made you interested in covering stories from the rest of the world?
1: I was probably always um, interested in the rest of the world from a very early age, I think. Um, even as a as a young, as a kid, I remember <laughs> we we had this um, uh, task, I guess, in, in class where we had to watch a show And then talk about the show the next day and we'd go around the classroom and the teacher said, okay, so what did you, what did everybody watch last night? And, you know, Home and Away and this and that and this. And it got to me and I said, the news. And, you know, there were a couple of people in the class who were like, the news? You watch the news? And I had this moment where I was like, doesn't everyone watch the news? Do you guys not watch the news? Am I the only one who watches the news? And it turns out that, I, yeah, I think maybe I was the only one who voluntarily watched the news. But I I had always sort of uh, been into wanting to know about the world, being very curious about the world, very curious about countries as well. Maybe that having to do with the fact that when you migrate, you're just very aware that there's another country that's very different to what this country is like. And so if there's one other country, then what are all the other countries like? It sort of kind of opens your mind up um, a little bit to wanting to know more about uh, other places in the world. And I just always wanted to travel. I was always, always, always. It just seemed fun. And I just had a a massive curiosity for it. And so that was something that was just there from a really young age that I'm very glad I got to pursue.
0: I'm interested in that curiosity because I think something you're very good at, not just in Your journalism, but in a whole range of roles that you undertake, including on the briefing is that you're really good at explaining stuff. And that Mm. sounds really basic, but it's the opposite. I think it is really hard to be someone who is good at taking something complex and making it not only understandable to someone who knows nothing about it, but also make it interesting and potentially even make learning about it fun. Like that is, that is not an easy thing to do. Where do you think that comes from? If I could find this video, jam, there's this
1: video of me because I I went to um, preschool in, in Lebanon. I think I was I would have been definitely three. And there's this video of me at a preschool graduation dressed in like a little graduation robe with one of those graduation hats and giving like the class speech in English. Oh, wow. Yeah. You had to make a speech at age three. I know. And my mum actually reminded me of it the other day. She's like, oh, you know, do you remember when you did the, you know, preschool speech and you spoke in English? You have to understand, English was is not the language. No one, you know, very few people spoke it at the time. This is 1980s Lebanon. So that kind of ability to, um, I guess, to, to speak has always come relatively naturally to me. Even learning when I, because I lived in France for a year and I remember learning French and um, I... <laughs> grammar reading and writing garbage speaking great yeah so i we had to do a whole bunch of tests which was like speaking reading writing bummed the last two killed the first one but because i bummed the last two i ended up in quite a low a low class uh and then in the oral exam the the teacher who was marking it was like why are you in this class and i said cuz i know how to speak but i can't do the other things cuz they require discipline and hard work and i hate both of those things <laughs> you know i only like doing what comes naturally so yeah i think i think it's it's probably a, it's it's a natural ability that i think i've leaned on and honed over time
0: i find it fascinating that you've ended up on a show called question everything when you kind of describe this this childhood and these early working days where you were someone who was curious and you were asking questions and it was all about communication and breaking down how something works. Um, and I think that's a real theme in, in your career is around this sort of unpicking of what we're told and unpicking of the status quo or unpicking of the story the media is telling us. Have you always been, I want to say anti-establishment, but it's more, <laughs> have you always been kind of willing to look behind the first story that you're told?
1: Yeah, I think it comes from my dad. I really have to credit him with a lot of that because he 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 always had this tendency to go, oh. But who? He, he'd always ask these sort of like really pointed questions and we'd be having a conversation like, oh, yeah, but who who's making the money, you know? Yeah. We'd be talking about something that I would think is completely, wholly disconnected. Or unconnected to money. And he would just ask that question, and suddenly you'd, you'd sort of be like, ah, oh, good question. What is this really about? He was always very concerned with who was benefiting from whatever situation was unfolding. Who was the beneficiary of whatever it is that is happening here? That's the pathway that leads to. Asking the right sorts of questions, I think, which which is really it's supposed to be the, the main pillar of journalism, right? Which is speaking truth to power. You know, that's that's uh, what we all hopefully believe we're here to do. Um, whether or not we do it and do it well is an, is a completely different question. But you know, that's that is what the fourth estate is, right? Like, wait a minute, who 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 are the powerful people in this position who are benefiting from this? And I think that that's something that my my dad instilled in, in me very early on, again, that I've kind of carried, that just stuck and um, managed to carry it with me into my professional life.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's also in the media space, it's also about who's telling the story in the first place, right, and who gets to tell their story and who has others tell their story for them. And something that I always come back to when I think about media and representation in the Australian media is what I've heard from you and what I've read from you in the past around the fact that certainly on commercial television, maybe, you know, we get good representation on SBS and I think the ABC does it reasonably well, but we still have a pretty homogenous media when it comes to who we see in terms of who's in front of the camera, who's telling the story. Do you think that is something that is going to change in the near future and are you part of that change from within um i probably would answer
1: y- yes to both questions do i think it's it's going to change in the future i think it's already changing i mean i look back at when i first started what i did the sbs cadetship in 2009 i mean i you couldn't count on one hand um prominent I'll just say Lebanese Australians, just because I've been been keeping a tally there on on you know m- my own community where I've come from. Um, you couldn't count on one hand the number of prominent uh, Lebanese people in the media. You, I don't think there was even one, and and I'm I'm sorry if there was and I missed them, but you know there wasn't somebody that you could point at and say, oh okay, that's that's who I want to be. And now you, you fast forward ten years, ten to fifteen years, and you know there's. I mean, I I can rattle the names off pretty easily, but there's 10, maybe 15 people, um, which seems like a tiny drop in a massive ocean, but that drop was not there before. So I do think it's changing. And in terms of whether or not I have had anything to do with the change, I think one of the big things is visibility and ownership of that narrative. And I can totally understand why there would be Lebanese people uh, or you know, Australians of Lebanese background who are like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not really interested in being public about my race. I don't particularly want to talk about it. It's none of anyone's business. I just want to carry on with my life. And you probably wouldn't even know that they had um, Lebanese heritage. But I think it's probably it's it's important at times to be open and and public about that, so that the person who was me 15 years ago can say, ah. Oh, who do I want to be like or what do I want to do? And then rattle off the list of people who are now, you know, prominent Arab Australians. I mean, to have Sarah Arbo, shout out to Sarah if you're listening yeah. Um, you know, she's a, a Australian of Syrian descent, even though I claim her as Lebanese. She's, you know, hosting the Today Show, like yeah. Breakfast Television in Australia. And that story, her story, her story of immigration uh, is very much at the forefront of, you know, the way that she is being pitched by the network because it is a quintessential Australian story. And for a long time, it was an outer edge of Australia story. It existed on the peripheries of Australia. And actually, no, it's very much part of, what this country is and where this country is headed. God, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I'd be like, what, an Arab Australian on Australian breakfast television in the in the main hosting chair sitting next to Carl? No. You would have been like, really? really? <laughs> won't we'll still be there, Willie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I knew. Carl wasn't going nowhere. But, it, yeah, it seemed like something that was a, a very sort of faraway prospect, and it's here.
0: It's a small incremental change, but it's it's happening. I think. Well, it's bringing multiculturalism out of Bankstown and into Sydney Uni, right? That's that's the equivalent of what they're doing.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting way of. I think it's um. Hmm, I have to think about that one. I don't know if I agree with that framing, but I don't know why I don't agree. Interesting.
0: Yeah. I suppose I say that because I see people like you and Sarah with your smarts and your contribution but also your visibility as women from non-white backgrounds as it still feels like a frontier somehow. It still feels like you're pushing into a space where you're not expected to be there.
1: I mean, it is a frontier. Uh, but two things can be true at once, you know. You can have made a certain degree of progress and still need to make a certain degree more. Um, and I think on the scale of of where we're at, the progress is still it's fledgling. You know, we're denting, we're making dents. But that that idea of like taking someone out of, bags down and putting them into Sydney Uni, it's like mm, that's not quite what I, want to do because that mm. that is. The the ecosystem remains the same. But what it ends up doing is engulfing whoever it is that comes out of Bankstown and goes to Sydney. This is all a metaphor, yeah. by the way. Yeah. I think, yeah, uh, which, you know, is, is, is one way of sort of describing what ends up being tokenism, right? I think the entire ecosystem needs to change rather than still having these two ecosystems and transferring one person between mm-hmm. the, to and from. I think it's it's that it's the entire kind of scaffolding that needs to change which is a I mean that's a much bigger question and you know I have issues with diversity and inclusion um I think most people who uh champions of it also have issues with it everybody's sort of thought about it critically you know I don't think it's a, a, a panacea is that the right word a, a solution mm-hmm. um I think it can, it d- depends on how it's implemented. I think it can, um, it can be rife with tokenism. I think it can ignore some, um, key issues around work rights, around worker pay. If you're a company that, uh, really promotes diversity and inclusion at a managerial level, but you pay your workers all well you know, especially if your workforce is made up predominantly of people who are of non-English speaking background or who might be of migrant backgrounds, like, well, who are you supporting here?
0: I feel like we are agreeing from slightly different perspectives because for me it's a question of, that visibility of diversity in wholly white spaces is a step forward and is exciting and deserves celebration and is mm. going to make some sort of shift. But you're making the point that that presence alone isn't enough because the presence of one person can be subsumed into the whole. Whereas you want to do something more than that. You want to disrupt, you want to change, you want, I want to, to disrupt the whole. Yeah. I want a, to disrupt the whole. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I'm, I'm not here for a slice of the cake. I'm here, for, I'm here for the cake. And then it becomes, well, who decides what multiculturalism is, what minorities? Oh, There's really the words I feel like to, for this topic of discussion are so, they're yet they're not to enough. be involved, right? They're not enough. They're really not enough. So I just want to want to flag that, that any word that I use trying to discuss this topic is insufficient, and I apologise. I agree. Uh,
0: yeah. Although, you know, what you just said then sounded what I imagine your dad is like, because you, <laughs> like, you were asking where the money came from. Well, yeah, kind of. Yeah. What's the part that we can't see? Yeah. What's the part that we can't see? And
1: it feels like sometimes there's organizations that are, you know, this is, this is very, very blunt language, but it's like, it's set up, by white people for what they think is what ethnic people uh,
0: do and like. But actually, it's is a white vision, you know. I'm going to drag you back while we're finishing up to the personal. And that is that you are raising a new human now, currently a very small human, but a human who is going to be asking questions as they get older and trying to figure out their own place in the world and asking about heritage and culture and race and inclusion. How are you going to answer those sorts of questions? I'm just going to tell him the
1: truth as I see fit. I mean, my kid is, you know, his father is a, a, a white guy and I obviously am Australian of Le- Lebanese descent uh, and he's got those two elements that are, you know, very uh, organically, innately uh, naturally a part of who he is. And as, I think it's wonderful that he has those two cultures. I, I want him to be able to move freely and seamlessly between them both. And I think he should be able to do that because I'm a much more empowered person than what my parents were. It, just by virtue of, you know, not being an, an immigrant who came here in their 30s with no money in the bank account and no English language skills, right? So I think already he's got this... Uh, sort of assessment of his culture that comes from a place of pride rather than a place of shame. And it comes from a place of empowerment rather than a place of sort of dismissiveness, right? So he's he's already in a much better position, I think, than what I was to really embrace that kind of Arab side of him. I think about this quite often, even even to myself. I mean, I'm ostensibly a white person. You know, you look at me, I'm white, I, I have white skin, uh, I have, you know, a broad Australian accent. My name is Jeanette Francis. It's not been changed to anything. I, I, I'm I effectively white passing yes. and my son is too, you know. So it would be very interesting, I think, to see how he moves through the world and, and the ways in which um, identity, kind of how he how he uses that or how he relates to that. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting. but I the one thing that I want to do is just make him incredibly proud of his family, first of all,
0: and then his grandparents um and then the the cultures from where they came. Sounds like a pretty good start to me, Jan. Thanks for being my guest on the weekend briefing. Thanks, Jan that's it for my chat with Jan Fran gosh it is so good to have her back if you want to get more Jan in your ears and let's face it who wouldn't you can listen to her right here right here on the briefing podcast you can also follow Jan on Instagram where she is at Jan double underscore Fran that's right two underscores she is that special don't go away the weekend list is coming up next <laughs> It is weekend list time. We are so excited to bring you some recommendations for this weekend. Braun is here and I know she's got some great suggestions. Start with something to watch, Braun, because the chances of me leaving my house in this heat are low.
2: Uh, this first one is a Netflix documentary called Pamela, a love story. It's about Pamela Anderson, her rise to fame, her childhood, the sex tape with Tommy Lee. It's this wild story about how she gets like discovered her whole career, the ups and downs throughout her life. It's just amazing you get to hear like these real like diary entries from her for all these big events um and it's super eye-opening you get to see a whole new perspective of her life and really gain a lot more respect for how she was treated in the public eye and you know the violation that comes through her sex tape being made public um and how people got to write her story and make her kind of become you know cartoonish in her own life. I just fell in love with her watching this and, yeah, she's just an incredible human being and it's definitely worth the watch.
1: I blocked that stolen tape out of my life in order to survive. And now that it's all coming up again, I feel sick. I want to take control of the narrative for the first time. I don't think people consider her the owner of her own image. It's Pamela Anderson. Public property. I didn't feel like I had a lot of respect.
2: Did you want to be a serious actress?
0: I am a serious actress. <laughs> that sounds so much fun. I have been watching stories and reading stories about Anderson's book and I am really hooked in. I'm going to watch that this weekend. I want to recommend a kind of, well, a chef, I suppose, a chef for you to follow on Instagram. I want to recommend Molly Baz. So she's on Insta. She's an American chef. She's a food writer as well. And often when you Google a recipe, Bon Appetit magazine comes up. She is a senior food editor there at Bon Appetit. She's also got her own YouTube channel. Um, I follow her on Instagram, Molly Baz, B-A-Z, and she just has the best recipes and she brings a real sense of fun to everything she does she sort of doesn't stay within one area of cooking so like most of us when we're cooking at home we're cooking all different cuisines and taking ideas from asian inspired cooking or french inspired cooking or more middle eastern inspired cooking she does the same she changes it up every night and massively recommend her she's also got a little club you can join where you can get heaps
2: more extra bits and pieces with your recipes my next one is on Netflix. It's called Triviaverse. So it's not a TV show. It's not a movie. It's a trivia game you can play on your TV with your remote. So you can either play by yourself or against somebody in your house. And it's kind of rapid fire general knowledge questions, which was so much more fun than I was anticipating it to be. It you know can get very competitive. It's always like interesting questions some of them are really random some of them are fun but yeah something different that you can do instead of just you know putting something on Netflix that sounds weird and fun and I think I saw
0: my son discovering like a kids bear grills kind of version of like interactive Netflix just the other day and I was totally confused it was like a choose your own adventure situation so clearly it's becoming more of a more of a thing. My final recommendation is the Mary Poppins musical, which is currently in Australia. It's on at Her Majesty's Theatre in Melbourne at the moment, but I know it has been and is going all around the country. Uh, Melbournians get on it and get on it fast. It is just so joyous and delightful. Marina Pryor is there as the bird woman, which is like an extra special, exciting bit for the musical nerds like me. Uh, but it is lovely and fun. My little boy absolutely went nuts for it, sang and danced the whole way and was standing up on his chair during the standing ovation because he still wanted to be able to see in amongst everyone else's applause. (laughs) That's it for the weekend briefing. Thank you so much for giving us your company. If you would like to hang out with us more often, then you can download the Listener app. You'll find us there or follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.